You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Uh, This week is going to be a special episode. It's going to be the beginning of Frog Week 2023. And I have uh, Aaron from Woods and Forest Media, if you recall. Uh, I had Aaron back uh, probably about, it would have been about a year ago, in uh, episode 108 called Building the Biome. Uh, If you want to get maybe back up a little bit and catch up on that episode at some point, it was a great one. But uh, Aaron is back, and we're going to talk about some of his conservation initiatives going on stateside, specifically in the state of Pennsylvania. And it's going, it's going to be real, really interesting. We've got a lot of cool stuff that we're going to cover. Uh, I love doing native species stuff. I know we don't do enough of it, and Aaron is definitely the man to go to. But um, before we get into that, of course, the usual stuff. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the support. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, all those reviews go a long way. I want to thank everybody for that. And uh, if you're looking to support the show, a great way to do so is to consider becoming a patron. I have a Patreon page. You can sponsor the show for as little as a dollar a month, but the $5 a month tier will get you a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. So if you want to support the show, those are a couple options to do so. And if you'd like to get something in exchange for being a fan, check out the link tree in the show notes. That'll take you to In-Situ Ecosystems Vivariums. If you want to buy a tank from uh, In-Situ, you'll get a 10% listener discount just by making the purchase through that link and you'll also find links to the merch store i've got uh, shirts and cool stuff socks and stickers and whatnot so if you want to support the show and get a little something for yourself that's another great way to do so so all that fun out of the way aaron it's good to have you back man how are you tonight what's going on oh man it's been so crazy it's like a roller coaster i feel like everybody's 2023 you know you have some really high highs and really low lows but i mean there's nothing better than getting on in the evening to talk to amphibi cast so can't wait to dive in here with you just super excited dan to be back here and have another opportunity to talk about some herps well thanks it, it's it's always good talking yeah we actually did uh, another collab a couple of months ago i i did a nice interview with you and uh, i think it was amelia right from josh's frogs and um, we did it on your YouTube channel. And for everybody listening, obviously, you know, once you finish the episode, I'm going to give you some um, some links and whatnot to check out some Aaron's content because he's got a great YouTube channel and a lot of uh, new production equipment, which has really like added a very, very, very uh, interesting dynamic to some of the video production. But we'll, we'll get into that. But Aaron, I, I want to just maybe catch up some of the listeners who might not have caught the episode last year. If you could maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself how you got into this, what your mission is with PA Woods, and why you chose to work with native species in Pennsylvania. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much again for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show, and I really, really appreciate what you do first. I just want to make sure that, you know, I I hype you up a little bit because I'm always excited to listen and always listening. So just wanted to get that out there first. Um, I want to try and and get through this quickly because sometimes... uh, I take too long to get to the point. So I'm a graduate student in biology at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. I'm in the herpetology department. I have another year to go before I graduate. So I am taking it as seriously as possible with trying to do work with these animals. I also founded a nonprofit called PA Woods and Forests in 2021 around, I think it was uh, New Year's Eve was whenever we finally signed the paperwork. So we focus on the conservation of frogs and toads, invertebrates, carnivorous plants. And I also have um, an educator permit for the state. So I'm allowed to bring in rescued frogs and toads off of a whitelist that they allow us to bring in. So I also have some of them. And you asked me 
like what got me into this. I'd really honestly have to tell you that it was my American Toad Ace. Um, I always was a hobbyist. I always was excited about frogs and toads. There was a long part of my life after I was a kid. I had this one female American Toad. She was amazing and she died and I was like 11. So I had no idea what I was doing, but uh, that was so devastating and actually took me until, I don't know, I was like 17 or 18 again to get another frog. And that frog actually is my white tree frog, Max. And um, I've kind of cycled through a few American toads because, like I said, they're rescues. But um, anyway, I had been going to school and I met this guy at my undergrad school at Pitt Johnstown. And he just started encouraging me like, you know, you should consider going for herpetology or getting into the biofield. I told him, I said, I'm not sure if I'm educated enough for that. And he's like, well, you've, you've got the passion and that'll carry you a long way. So um, I took him up on that. Shout out to Dr. Bonachea for that. Uh, but anyway, not only was his confidence in me and his um, support, one of the big things that helped me to take this leap of faith, but I also had and have a female American toad named Ace, and she's kind of the mascot. She's like the lead character, the main star of Woods and Forests media, and she was going through a rough time. Uh, she actually had multiple prolapses, and Ace also had some type of a seizure, and she had been really put through the ringer. Um, nobody thought she was going to make it, but she just had some type of resiliency. I mean, you see all the time frogs and toads go through a prolapse and they end up dying immediately. But for her to go through a handful of those and continue to uh, put up with my ignorance at that time, I just, uh, out of a whim, I called the Pittsburgh Zoo and they gave me the number of a vet that might be able to help her and they might not. I ended up calling the wrong number, but it was the right vet. And I took Ace out there and the doctor was able to save her life. So shout out to Dr. Morrison. She's at AVETS um, in Pittsburgh. But after that situation happened, I felt so bad. <clears throat> Excuse me. I felt so bad. I felt like, you know, I let her down and I said, you know, never again is this going to happen to one of my animals. And literally from that point on, it never happened again. But I said, I'm getting into this because I want to be the best that I can for ace and I, I really wanted to help the animals out in the wild as well so i was more so leaning towards native herps all along but whenever that happened to ace and then her survival was really the domino that fell that started this whole chain reaction and and led me on my path to where i am today so yeah she's a super inspirational figure to me and still even why i'm going through grad school now um you know, dedicating that to her, because if it wasn't for her strength and her willingness and her resiliency, I don't know that, you know, I would have wanted to pursue this field. And, you know, it's just, yeah, she's very meaningful to me. And that's why, you know, something as common as an American toad can, you know, change somebody's life if they have their eyes open and, you know, they're, they're willing to look for opportunities. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the American toad because, the American toad, at least here in the U.S., for my, my listeners outside of the country or people who just who have never run into one, this is really, really common. Nothing particularly remarkable about them, but maybe that's just because to us they're so commonplace. And I oftentimes think about 
our perceptions of of tropical frogs like dart frogs, mantellas and whatnot. And I mean, at least to many of us here in the US, Canada and UK, obviously we don't see these things every day. And to people who do see them every day, they're not, you know, it's kind of a common sight. And I feel like just because we see them regularly doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have the same value and the same importance. And one of the things that I took from you, especially from our, our, our last interview and from subsequent discussions you and I'd had, is that American toads are actually fairly fragile in captivity. And to be honest, at least from what we talked about, I feel like a, a captive bred dart frog would actually be much more forgiving than a uh, wild-caught American toad, right? I think so, and I don't want to take anything away from dart frog keepers. The only thing I'll say is uh, I'm actually the leader of a Facebook group called Frogs and Toads, and I've seen, I mean, back in the old forum days, I was also on Frog Forum and Dendroboard and everything else, but for our Facebook group, I try to get on people every single year and probably a couple times a month, please get your animals checked for parasites and get them dewormed. Uh, the average lifespan that I see when people think they know everything is about a year to maybe three years that they last in captivity. And I'm not saying everything can be, you know, the example, but there was a female American toad that made it to 43 years in captivity until I guess something happened, but nobody knows what happened. But anyway, the idea is that female American toads and even male American toads, they can live a very long lifespan with having slower metabolisms. But the thing is, if we don't take care of them properly, if we're not feeding them a varied diet, if we're not gut loading their food and, you know, we're not providing for them like we would for the other frogs and toads in our collections, or if they're our only animals or our main animals, then they're going to suffer just like any animal would have neglect. But yeah, they're a lot more fragile as are gray tree frogs and wood frogs and you know, the other native species, uh, especially wood frogs. I mean, that's like, that's a whole different level because you got to keep the room a certain temperature. You got to have them dewormed. You got to know how much to feed them. Like they, they can be obese. Um, you know, and, and that's another animal that I keep along with my American toads. And in one of the tanks, they're going to be living together. So, you know, that's a, that's a very challenging battle but yeah i spent a few thousand each year on just trying to keep these guys healthy just the vet bills i'm not even talking you know the enclosures or feeding them or the lights or anything like that so yeah and i don't want to take anything away from anybody i think that all frogs and toads are are a challenge to keep in captivity but um they're gonna only go as far as you let them you know if you want them to survive if you care about them like your dog or your your kids you know if you really want to uh, give them everything that you can provide the best that you you really can then you know they're going to respond to that and that's what i've seen yeah it, it's i mean if, if if everyone's been kind of following this this little subtle thought process i've been in, in kind of inserting to every episode regardless of the the topic but uh the difference between long-term wild caught successfully uh successful excuse me successive generations you know not just f1s but you know, F5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and beyond. Uh, these animals have just adapted under our care to thrive in captivity so much better than wild-caught animals. And with American toads, I mean, at least to my knowledge, nobody's captive breeding them for hobby purposes. I mean, I'm, there probably are people who are doing that, but uh, you wouldn't think that a wild frog or toad that you find in your backyard would be that difficult to assimilate into captivity, especially when it's only coming maybe 50 feet into your home. 
And you're, you're right. They, they are very, very fragile. It's almost like a completely different animal. Like the captive bred dart frogs that we have today, at least in my opinion, is just very, very far removed from many of the animals that you'd encounter in the wild just because they've acclimated over so many generations to our care. Um, I'm just curious, though, with, with ACE, what was the what was the treatment protocol that um, you went through with her to get her back to um, back to good health again? What was the what was the process like? Oh, I'd love to get into this. So this is a like you're throwing me a fastball right over home plate here for this one. But I do want to say real quick, I want to go back for a second. So you said about if people are breeding them. So in the United States, especially in the eastern United States where they're native, it's actually for the most part, what I understand, illegal, um, unless you're re- getting them to reproduce and selling them outside of their native range. Um, so if there are people that are doing that, they're just very limited because of the government. Um, and, and in some ways, that's good. And in other ways, I can understand that that, you know, some people think that's bad. But you got to figure if I could go out in the wild without my permit, and I could just catch these toads, and I could try to make them breed, if they don't breed, and I, and I ended up killing them, hypothetically speaking, then I just go get new ones. And so that's how you could start to really cause a decline in any population. And a lot of people don't look at it from that perspective. You know, they think that people, not everybody that's breeding animals is in it for the right reasons and is going to try to be ethical, especially if it's like a discounted frog or toad that you could just collect out of your yard every year. So I'm not trying to say I'm on one side or the other, but I can understand why it's illegal. Um, It's for the animals protection. So I just, you know, I wanted to say that because there's probably people that are genuinely going to be wondering, like, why aren't there American toads in captivity? And that's, you know, that's probably a a good answer as to why they're usually not offered. Um, But you asked me about the protocol for ACE. And so it's good to explain. So Dr. Morrison's like accredited and she's gone through like some really uh, amazing education. So she was telling me that there were rabdius parasites. So they're a parasitic nematode that was affecting ACE and all of my animals. So I didn't know this. And this would have happened to that toad when I was 11, if I kept her long enough anyway. Um, there are just certain parasites that attack frogs and toads out of the vernal pool right as they come onto land, right as they have their forelegs and they're losing their tails. But they'll also attack them at other stages in their life. So the nematodes, would, if they're small enough, can go through their eardrums, but they can also wait on the mouth of the animal. And whenever they go to feed, they'll work their way in. They'll, you know, they'll sneak in with the prey item and that's how they get in. So um, what I'm understanding is that they suffer like American toads and most native species suffer from a lung parasite and an intestinal parasite. And sadly, Ace at the time had both and she was so infested it was bad. Um, Not that you could see them on her, but they were starving her. So she was literally starving and her uh, cloaca was coming out repeatedly. And so we had to find a way to get her the proper nutrition because she still wanted to eat. I mean, that's what saved her life. But we also had to deworm her. But you can't deworm an animal, um, especially because the doctor was using ivermectin. And there were there was a lot that I had to give that animal. I mean, Ace had really been dealing with a lot of stuff. This was like five years ago. Um, but anyway, 
what she told me was there was a research study done on what's the proper nutrition for native species, specifically American toads were used in this study. So it's like, wow, you know, how lucky could you get? But there was, and I, I can share that with you. You could share it with your audience. I think it's free and available to the public to read, but there was a research study done on what is the proper nutrition for basically the native species. And they found there was a chicken feed and then there was the Missouri better bug gut load. And then there was the, I think it was the aquatic turtle diet also by Missouri. Um, and if you fed that to the dubia roaches, the crickets, whatever, the mealworms, then fed it to your animal, it would start getting the proper nutrition. I think ACE was like 46 grams at one point. I mean, that's really bad for a female toad. And right now she's about 146 grams, like present day. I weighed her last night on the gram scale. So um, she has exposure to UVB, but it's a very low wattage percentage. And she regulates that herself as she goes, if she wants it or if she doesn't. Um, but she's generally like Pikachu. She's always out. Um, very rarely will I see her not active. Uh, even when she was sick, she was just that kind of toad. You know, she would always be up front. She was very personable. And, you know, she gets her food. She makes sure she gets it. But um, a varied diet was a very important part of making sure she survived. So I'm breeding dubia roaches and canyon isopods. I'm trying to get a captive colony of ants going for her. Um, and I think Ace gets probably about five to six different feeder inverts a month. But we have, I think, around 20 that are listed as a part of her diet plan. And I do that for the wood frogs. And there's a the gray tree frogs get fewer than that, but they're all on the gut load, even the white tree frogs. So I think that this gut load is actually very good for any of the, the larger species. I know dart frogs are more specialized and they have their own diet and, you know, gut loading and, and whatnot. But uh, for the other animals, you know, they really didn't have that. And this study was like, I think 2014, 2015. And before that, everybody just thought, you know, you just took care of them the same way. Like you use Reptical or you use uh, Reptivite, you know, you can use all these different Rapashi things. But uh, what I found was from that study, it saved my animals. They put on healthy weight. If I want them to drop weight, I can get them to drop weight. They're very hyper, very active animals. They look like they would in the wild in a lot of ways. Um, so, I mean, I'm sorry to go on a, a rant here. I just wanted to kind of give you some of the stuff that was happening and, and kind of detail it. It's funny that you mentioned that because I actually think I have that paper right in front of me. Um, I had it, I went on kind of a, a, um, a binge with regards to nutrition and supplementation. And I think, I don't know if this is the same paper we're talking about, but let me, I have uh, nutrition and health in amphibian husbandry, and it looks like it was in zoo biology. Uh, December 21st, 2015. I believe so. Does it begin with an H? Um, like for the title of it? HHS Public Access? Author manuscript? Oh. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I, I have I have it here. I have it on DocBox for people to see the transcript. But yeah, it was a zoological study that was done. So I mean, these are people that are working with these animals uh, in the zoo setting. So people that were included in this were like, I'm reading it right off of the, 
paper, somebody from the Toledo Zoological Society. Looks like there's four of them. Woodland Park Zoo, San Diego Zoo, more people from Toledo, and then Zoo Atlanta. So there's a handful of researchers that were, you know, looking into this. Uh, it's about five pages. Looks like they're quoting from the early 2000s. Um, let me see here. I don't know if I can find exactly when it came out, but it came out five years ago. So, yeah, I, I find that a lot of the yeah, I find that a, a lot of the papers that get published. I mean, it's funny because you look at a paper that's published now, and the research may have started five years ago. So, it, it, there's always, I guess, some sort of a you know difficulty to stay current because it takes these papers a long time to go through peer review and then you have the research which might have taken several years but regardless i mean i feel like by and large most of the resources with regards to nutrition seem to be pretty well put together at least for amphibians i mean that you venture off into reptiles that's a whole other ball of wax but um, I mean, at the end of the day, if you if you look, there are some pretty good guidelines with regards to diet and uh, supplementation. Now, I, I mean, just to, to move forward, though, I wanted to ask about your, um, how do I put this? You're, you've, you've got kind of a vision, right? You're, what, what struck me about you was interesting was this. You're, you're kind of like a self-made naturalist. You know, you, you took an interest in all of these subjects. You took an interest in native uh, herps and native amphibians and you've taken it to the point where you've also created your own youtube channel you have your own online presence you have this kind of this mission going for yourself um i mean what's like the 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 grand scheme goal for you here with um woods and forest media and all these pa species like what's what's your end goal here with all this well i mean first i want to thank you for the kind words i really appreciate that um yeah, there's so much. It's so layered and it's just like Frog Week. Um, there's so much we can get into, but I want to try and stay on top of this. I really want to make an impact and I want to help the wild animals as somebody who doesn't want to take anything but wants to give. So my whole goal is I want to create artificial pools out in the wild. I want to learn how these animals are doing in different locations. I want to start head starting programs. If I can even work with the state to reproduce my animals and then allow their offspring to be head started with uh, model spe- as a model species, you know, for different locations. I know that that's something that they're kicking around, not with me, but with other groups. So, uh, I mean, I'm all about it. I'm all about like giving instead of receiving in this because I just get so much joy uh, doing this for the animals and seeing how some of the small things that I'm doing, even in only a handful of locations are making big changes for these animals. And, uh, you know, I want there to be a presence for native species online because I'm bored with watching all of the exotic stuff. No offense to anybody that's into the exotic stuff, but even, you know, even if you are on that side, okay, hear me out on this. How many documentaries do you watch? And there's just no personality of the animal. You know, they're just, they're just frogs on the documentary. And then they transition to another neat animal and they might have a name for it or, you know, it'll have this amazing backstory, but where's that for frogs and toads? And, you know, I have a media background. Uh, My undergrad was in communications and I minored in bio. So I'm looking at 
BBC America and Animal Planet, National Geographic, and a lot of big YouTubers. And I think there's been a lot of, uh, how do I put it, disinterest, or maybe it's a no-go zone, a no-fly zone. Nobody wants to get into the weeds with the native species. But, um, you know, I've already gone through a lot of red tape, and I've already kind of gone through the weeds, and I'm willing to make these animals the star of the show. Um, I don't see why, you know, an American toad can't be the star of a documentary or a gray tree frog or, you know, six frogs and toads from Pennsylvania or however many. Uh, so I want to, I want to make a seat at the table for conservation, you know, and, and add these animals into the conversation with fish and birds and mammals. And, you know, I have an understanding of there's a need for the media to accomplish those goals because if you can put a name and a face to an animal like a lot of the you know the big nature networks do then you can get more people to care about it maybe inspire the next generation of kids so i mean i do that with the frog walks that we do for the nonprofit, and um, i do critter talks presentations in like high schools and elementary schools and church groups and senior homes and libraries but um you know, I want there to be a seat at the table. And I think that some of the animals I have right now are the faces that could really make that happen. You know, if you come and you see Ace or whenever we start making feature videos about her again on the channel, um, I don't think there's another American toad in the country that um, that has a better story than she does or that's more entertaining. And I'm not trying to, you know, to disrespect anybody, but with all due respect to the five years of hell that she went through, you know, I think that why not, why not ACE? Why can't she be the face of a new movement? Or, you know, you look at one of the new animals I caught Esperanza, a great tree frog that his story is he was rescued from deforestation. Um, you know, why can't he be the feature frog of a documentary? And so even if they're smaller documentaries and it's a smaller audience, Maybe it's going to be a slow burn and it'll catch fire in the end, but I don't really look at it in terms of, do I have a hundred thousand subscribers or did I make it on the news tonight? I mean, of course you want to get to that point, but how much of an impact did I make for the wild animals this year? You know, how clean is my animals tanks? Like how clean are their tanks? Um, you know, what kind of an impact did I make on the children when I went there to present these animals you know, those are the things that I think about. Uh, did I do enough in school? Am I learning enough? Am I pushing myself enough? So I think, you know, to end this long-winded rant, there's just so much that I could really explain, but it comes back at the end of the day that I want there to be a seat at the table when we talk about uh, throwing money at conservation. I want I want the native species to, you know, be included in that, the frogs and toads. And, you know, if I can try to do anything to help that, I'm going to do it. And the other thing that also impresses me about your channel, and I, I, I want to get into some of the tech stuff because you you shared some of the videos, which, I mean, by the time everybody's listening to this, this we, we time this to be in accordance with the, the, the release of Aaron's material for Frog Week. But um, you'd shared some, you know, some early uh, previews with me and your, your video production is, is you've got drones and all sorts of cool stuff. But um, I mean, before we get into the tech thing, I, I just wanted to mention that the other thing that it, is unique about you is that you're 
you're a self-starter and I feel like many people today have the advantage of being able to start your own media, you're able to start your own media, start your own projects, whatnot, and garner attention to it on your own without necessarily having the backing of this, this massive um, presence behind you, meaning, uh, you know, a, a large museum or a university or whatever, and that it's within the grasp of, I don't say average people, to, you know, to me that that's kind of disparaging, but um, to, to anybody who doesn't necessarily have a, a large entity behind them backing that which might also have an agenda or whatever um it's encouraging it's encouraging to see people go after species that have been overlooked and make it a pet project and then develop that pet project into something that becomes its own entity unto itself so to me that that's impressive and it's encouraging to see people do that like a while back i had um i had a a group and uh, they were they were kind of organizing a documentary to go down into uh, Central America to look at uh, uh, Bolidoglossa, which I thought was great. I'm like, you know what? It, it's there are so many species, like you said, that just don't necessarily have the narrative behind them to back up their needs, and there is a demand for that out there, and it's nice to see people filling it. And you're you're, you're right. An American toad can tell a story just as easily as a great whale or a lion, or a shark. You just have to get it in front of the right person. But, I mean, when it comes to telling these stories with the... I mean, we can, we can get into the tech stuff now if you want. Um, I mean, how have you advanced tech-wise? Because your early videos were, were good, but they've gotten dramatically better with the use of drones and whatnot. So how have you incorporated that technology to further the mission that you're going towards? Well, I think there's so many ways to answer this. And man, again, I just want to thank you for being so kind and, and saying the words that you do. I, I really appreciate that. You got to understand, I work in some crazy situations and not everybody is, is Team Aaron. So it's nice to, <laughs> nice to hear somebody so uh, supportive. I, I really appreciate that. But uh, I want to say you're only as good as the team around you and you're only as good as what you know. And with what I, what I do, I mean, I'm watching a lot of the tech youtubers and i do watch a handful of other youtubers that are in the pet space but uh, the majority of where i get my inspiration is from those tech guys because they have some really good um points they explain things very well about cameras and about the specs and things that maybe somebody who's involved in conservation might not be interested in or might not need to know and you look at it too and they're not talking about wildlife. It's for lifestyle. It's for podcasts and things like that. So I've kind of had to do my own homework while I watch these things to see, is this something I need or is this just something that's pretty neat and that, you know, it's not really something that's essential to what I'm trying to accomplish. So I think I've done a really good job of that, of evaluating what I thought would be a good purchase a good idea for the channel but i mean not only just for frog week i'm also hoping to invite anybody that's listening anybody that's reading newspaper articles that i'm in anybody that's following me on youtube or anything like that i want to invite people to follow all of the projects and um the the gear that i have is only getting better and the storytelling that i'm 
getting into now. I think I finally found my voice as a narrator, Frog Week. So I think we're at a beginning point, and uh, this is the first time that I feel confident enough even to come on your show and say, hey, I've got some quality products. I've got a podcast. I've got a pet care show. You know, we've got a hiking show, and we've got a conservation project where we work with the nonprofit, uh, and we have got a really amazing project coming up in the near future. You know, I think that this is worth your time to watch. I mean, I'm shooting in 4K. I'm uh, color grading the images, but you know, I'm also willing to to play around. You know, we want to talk about the tech for Frog Week. I mean, I bought a weather station. I bought a drone. I bought a trail camera and 4K binoculars that can record in night vision. So there was a need for all that stuff. I explained this to a few different reporters and uh, podcasters already, but the drone is so important because if I want to get real-time data and I want to understand what's happening over 5, 10, 15, 25 years, and I fly that drone up over a pond, I can see what's going on. Is there deforestation around it? Is there invasive species? You know, how's the water level? So I could see all that stuff and the trail camera. Most people probably don't even know that you can use those to catch frogs and toads, but you'll see the incorporation of that in frog week. I was able to get audio plus the animals in the shot, mostly American toads, but um, you know, there's a need to, to showcase that there are people out there that probably are using it, but it's not as common of a, of a, um, device or a, something that you would use in the field so you know all these different things they all work together to create something interesting for somebody to watch you know how does all this work together how does all this come together like i run out run around with a bluetooth speaker getting frogs to call back as i play artificial calls you know all that stuff is important and i want to take people with me to experience that you know i got the chance to show a wild gray tree frog hunt where, you know, I go looking for them and I strap a GoPro to my chest and you see how I'm trying to find the animal. And I, I think stuff like that is really valuable because, you know, you see it all the time. Guys are going to look for extinct species or they're going to go look for a really rare animal or a top predator and you get the chance to see really cool footage. But um, why not if you're trying to find a frog that's really rare in an area or maybe it's it's hard to find or never been documented somewhere, you know, why not create some buzz around that and make that exciting? So I don't know. I try to think about how the viewer would want to watch it. And, you know, if I was going to watch a great tree frog documentary or an American toad video, um, or, you know, if we're talking about the pets, I, I want to think about how would the viewer feel or what would I want to watch if I was going to turn on the TV and, sit down and watch something because my time is valuable just like everybody else's. So I want to put quality stuff out there. And I think that, you know, you'll see that this is the beginning. This is a big starting point. It's a, it's a channel defining project, honestly, because once you watch it, you know, that's going to be the new normal for the channel. There is no going back to like mediocrity or even amateur. I think that this kind of puts me in a place where it's like maybe semi pro, maybe even at the very beginning, but I'd like to think, you know, it, it definitely enters me into that uh, window. So let's pose a hypothetical here. Let's just say, and I'm, I want to get into some specific projects that you're working on too. We'll move on to that in a bit. But first, let's just say for argument's sake, you want to make a 
short film about American toads. Let's just say for argument's sake, uh, you want to do a full calendar year from January uh, into December, document the life of American toads. How do you gear up? Like, what, what do you, what goes into your bag when you go out into the field? How do you set it up? What's the time frame? What are you looking to capture? And how do you take that and edit it and basically boil everything down into something that people can watch? Well, there's there's many ways to to make something like this happen, many ways to get it done. But I guess one of the ways that I would break it down is you first have to make sure you know that the animals exist there. So, I mean, if we're going off of the hypothetical, if you'll grant me that under under the hypothetical that you already know that the animals are there. So you're going to prepare, you know, for an entire year to film animals that you know where they already exist. Uh, <clears throat> I usually keep with me a water temperature gauge, um, a thermal temperature gauge, like, you know, the point, the infrared ones you point and you can get the temperature. Um, I have pH tubes. Like I can tell the pH. I try to keep a gram scale with me. Um, I try to make sure I have multiple lenses, but I use telescope like telephoto lenses because you might not know where the right shot's going to be. So if you go out with a prime lens, you're more likely to, to ruin things or to mess it, mess it up, even though they're better at low light. Um, I probably want to make sure that I bring the phone with me um, to collect the data as well. I take a lot of lights, a lot of lanterns, um, lanterns and flashlights and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I probably have about 20 pounds of gear in my book bag at all times. Uh, and the majority of that stuff I actually do use. Um, I have so many different tools and gadgets. It's almost like Batman with his uh, belt. You know, he's got his utility belt. I feel like that's kind of what I've turned my book bag into. So you just want to have the right tools in the right situation. That's what it really comes down to. And then, you know, the other side of it is planning and executing that plan. So for me, if I want to go and I want to get people excited just about wild toads, I'd want to find them at their breeding season. And I'd want to make sure that we're filming them as they're wrestling and fighting in the pond and, you know, try to make it interesting and try to make it exciting and maybe try to make it, um, intense, you know, like a battle scene, because you, even if it is a little overdramatic, you want to get people to really invest in the story. So, you know, you kind of look at it from that perspective, you, you can look at it in full, even philosophically, like there's going to be more males than females. So if you go to the pond, and you're understanding that, you know, the majority of these American toads are not going to mate and they're wrestling and they're calling all night and they're even willing to risk being eaten by predators and get hit by cars and taken by people for the pet trade and poaching and stuff like that. Uh, and, and you see how much it matters to them. I think that that's the best premise or the best place to begin for a story. And the journey, I think, is what a good a good person would want to capture you know if you can if you had the time and you had the availability to film the toads coming to the pond and then you were able to tell the story of you know those who succeed and those who don't and explain how you know it's going to be a long year for those toads if they don't get another shot uh 
And if you have a second round, like I've seen, you know, you film that too. Here's a second opportunity, a second chance for these American toads who didn't get the chance to breed the first round. And now they've got another shot at it. It, you know, you could talk about it even from redemption if you, uh, and this is like really getting into the weeds, but if somebody was doing this scientifically and they were monitoring toads and they had like collars on them or something, and you could literally find out if that animal was reproducing or not, you know, you could really create some exciting content about that. Uh, so there's just, there's so much, there's so much that you could, you know, so many stories, they just, they would never get boring. They'd never get tiresome because it's always a new cast every year. It's always a new story, something new thrown into the plot every year. So, I mean, that, you know, there's a lot to sit down and think about. And, and a lot of the stuff I have to look at every year, whenever I'm going to go out and try to film these animals. One of the things that's unique about species that are in, in temperate regions is that the fact that we have seasons. And a lot of the species that I talk about on the show are primarily from the near the equator so there's not much there's some variation but it's more like a wet dry season it's not like what we have here in the northeast US how much attention do you have to pay to the weather to know how to time when to go out and how to be there in the right place at the right time because I mean I know to some extent it's predictable but in the tropics you can just be out in a rainstorm and frogs will start to breed whereas I have to imagine it's going to be a little bit more subtle and a little bit more delicate with regard to timing here in the in the Northeast. How, how do you how do you manage the uh, the timing with regards to weather and natural conditions? Well, I mean, three of the four animals in Frog Week are very small window for the breeding season. Wood frogs are explosive breeders, meaning you know they might only reproduce in one night and they're done. That literally happened this year. Last year, I went to the top of this mountain, probably 800 wood frogs, and I filmed it. I was there, and I went up again this year. Uh, the night that we went up there, it was ice all over the water, and it was cold, no wood frogs. We missed one day because we were filming at another site, went, went back up two days later, and all the eggs were laid, and there were no wood frogs to be seen. So, I mean, if you don't plan it right, uh, you, you miss that opportunity. Same thing with the gray tree frogs. They seem to be more crepuscular, so they come out late evening, real early morning, and that's when they're the most active. Well, if you miss that, you have maybe an hour or two hours a night, you miss it. And there's no guarantee, especially with what I'm trying to do with them in locations where they're not really known to be, like very small pockets of them. That's why it's so exciting for the people around my area because you don't see them or you like literally nobody had found them until 2021 when I decided to go out and really try to find them. I had to do like some Jeremy Wade stuff and play detective and know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. But as I've learned over the last three years, they, they don't come out in rainstorms. They're actually kind of quiet probably cause they're a smaller frog. Um, but you know, you got to really break down what are the habits of the animal and the pickerel frogs. They have like a maybe two week window. And if it's too warm, they don't come out to call. It's too cold. You know, only a couple of them come out. And that was really hard this year. We didn't quite hit the nail on the head for the pickerel frogs, sadly. But yeah, it's the thing is what people need to know in a nutshell. If you're going to do stuff in a temperate setting, you've got to be willing to go out like you're on call, like you're at the hospital. I mean, literally, if, if it's got to happen at 3 a.m., you got to get out and you got to go at 3 a.m. If it's going to happen, you know, and somebody has a special event, but you've got to go get that footage, 
Um, in some cases, you might have to excuse yourself and, and go get that footage. I know I've had to do that a lot too. Um, you know, you, you might have a tendency to let people down in some ways, but if you're really committed, you've got to be willing to, to do it. And yeah, like even the gray tree frogs, um, I would have a, you know, a very difficult day at work. I'm tired, you know, some physical labor and stuff and want to lay down. And all of a sudden my gray tree frog starts to call and it's like, well, I guess the gray tree frogs are, are out. So I go down about an hour away and I'm walking around looking for them because my gray tree frog is in tune with the wild gray tree frog since, you know, he's, he's from here. So in a nutshell, you've got to be willing to go like right now, if you got to go somewhere, you got to plan out, you know, especially if it's an hour drive or a two hour drive or whatever, you got to plan that. And so it's not easy. It's not for everybody. And it's, very high stress at times because if you miss it even by a 15 minute stretch you're done the whole night you wasted your gas you wasted your time you know you're done <laughs> and i've had that happen this year I've, I've even as somebody who's very experienced and knows what to expect um you don't always succeed when whenever you think you will i mean the animals have their preferences yeah, being in the right place at the right time is is definitely important. I mean, I can I can, I can definitely attest to that. I mean, here in the I mean in the Northeast, we've got a great salt saltwater fishery, and I'm you know for those of you who know me, I'm pretty big into angling. And if you miss that tide, especially in some of the spots that I fish, like the inlets, you've got this really short window where these fish will come in on this tide, and then they're they're gone. And if you're not right there at the right time in the right conditions, it's you've you've wasted your whole trip. So. I definitely, uh, I definitely understand the urgency. I, I didn't even realize that though, that, um, how your, your gray tree frog, and I'm sure some of the other species that you have in, in your, um, you know, in your private uh, collection, I never even thought about them being kind of like, uh, barometers for what's going on with their wild counterpart, wild counterparts. How much of their behavior do you pick up on and take cues from like in regards to like when you should get back out into the field? Oh man, this is going to be a fun one here. This is going to be a fun answer. I'm I'm really excited to talk about this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. So, episode seven is this is the main point. This is like one of the biggest parts of the whole episode. You didn't get the chance to see that one, Dan. Um, I'm trying to hold some stuff back, so you know you don't see it. It's like Christmas. If you open up the gifts early, you won't really appreciate them as much as if you saw them for the first time. So you know, there's some things I wanted to kind of keep to the tighter to the vest and. Episode seven, I come home and I'm hanging out. I'm trying to figure out ways to stimulate Esperanza. So I play the same audio calls that I played in the wild when I found him. And what I found is it's good stimulation. If he calls back, he feels like he's the dominant frog, right? Like he thinks that he outclassed these other frogs in the breeding season. And, you know, he thinks that he's, he's the, he's the, the guy, like he's the alpha. So it's good stimulation. But here's the funny thing. I started to wonder because I was 0 for 3 in one of the counties that I discovered these guys. I couldn't find them on my own. Couldn't find them the whole year. We're going on months. And he starts calling. He's not even from that population, but I'm like, you know what? I wonder if he's on to something. I wonder if Esperanza knows that they're going to be active. So I go down to the spot hour away and I have nothing to go off of. No reason to be down there except, oh, my frog was calling. So maybe they're down there. I go down there and there are more frogs calling than I'd ever heard. So not only was he right, 
but he got them at the heat of the moment like when everybody was out like i mean we're talking probably a hundred great tree frogs and they don't seem to gather where i'm from in that high of a concentration so that was impressive and i'm like okay you know maybe that was a fluke he got lucky you know because you want to play skeptic a little bit you don't want to just take things always at face value so it happens again I think a week later, or a couple of days later, not very far away. And you could say, well, you know, it, he's more likely to get it because they're still out. Well, that's not always true. I mean, these animals are very finicky. You know, if, if the conditions get below 60, they might not want to call. If it's too wet, they might not want to call. I haven't heard them call in fog. So, I mean, there's just so many variables to this. But anyway, then the second time he starts calling again and I'm like, well, it's later at night. And they're normally not active at this time. If he's right about this, you know, there's something to this. So I get on there again. It's much later. I'm tired. I got work in the morning and they're out and they're active. Same gray tree frogs. And I'm just like, man, uh, he gets the assist for that. So yeah, these animals are in tune with what's going on in the wild. And it's just so exciting that I got the chance to show that. You know, that my frog literally was giving away the activity of these animals that nobody had seen for, you know, the history of, the, of, a, of an entire county in Pennsylvania. Nobody had ever known or maybe not even cared that they were there. And it's like now we've got something pretty neat going on here. And my great tree frog is helping, you know, to accomplish a goal, helping to continue to document these animals. So, yeah, he, he gets the assist for that. That's incredible. That's that that's that's amazing. I, I I I've always had ideas in my head that certain I don't want to say sensitive because I mean it's sensitive can be a subjective thing. But like I have a pair of Phyllobates bicolor green leg, not the Arabas green leg, old green leg lime, which I've talked about repeatedly on the show, and they'll call very periodically. But there's that one rainstorm during the year like right around the june or so and that's the only time i'll get a clutch out of them and it's always infertile but i i I've, as soon as i hear them calling i'm like something's going on i go outside and then sure enough within like a couple of minutes this big storm just this like pop-up storm just shows up so it, it is pretty incredible like you wouldn't think that something that um something so seemingly insignificant as a small frog can be such a substantial cue to what's going on with its, its its wild counterparts that's that's amazing that's that's some story <laughs> he's gonna have one heck of a resume by the end of frog week <laughs> yeah yeah i you know I, I another thing that just popped up into my head is uh and I, I mentioned this because i was out getting um pet food for my my daughter's uh, rats and we were in a big box pets pet store yeah i know i'm, I'm a terrible person um <laughs> i saw your poll on that by the way I, how did that go before you answered did people like petco or no it was it was uh, it was a mixed bag different people to i mean look if you need to go get dog food you, you gotta go get dog food but yep. um they had a um actually this this wasn't that one this was their counterpart this was a uh their competitor but um they had a green tree frog american green tree frog i should say for people outside the u.s and they had it for sale for like six bucks or something like that. And I started thinking about, I've seen American green tree frogs in the wild, especially in the South. They're relatively easy to go around and field collect. But 
Gray tree frogs at one point were also relatively common in the hobby as wild caught pets. And I occasionally I'll see them pop up at tables, but, uh, I mean, how are people, if they're that hard to find, how are people sourcing them? To, like, how are people field collecting them? Like, how does, do you have any info on how that happens? Yeah, I think there's, this is, this could be really interesting for your listeners too. So gray tree frogs have one weakness when people can exploit them and that's at the breeding season. So they come down from the trees. A lot of times they'll be hanging out in the water. I don't want to go too much into detail, uh, but it's much easier to get them during the breeding season where I live in the mountains in Pennsylvania. They're just not known. They weren't thought to be a mountainous species. Nobody really considered that they would be around because they seem to just be more of like a valley species, even though they're more cold tolerant than the Cope's gray tree frog. So, you know, you get below Virginia, they're not there anymore. They, they actually do tolerate the cold better and they are more of a cold tolerant frog than people think. But uh yeah so i think that the poachers are probably going around the same time as i am which is why i have to mask the location of where i go because i know for a fact there are people that will take any frogs or toads they find and they'll feed them to snakes and sell them in the pet trade or whatever like people on ebay are always field collecting so they're more common in many other locations it just so happens that in my part in pennsylvania They'd never been documented in a couple counties that I'm close to. So, you know, I wanted to do my part and help add another species to the abundant species list. But even though we all know kind of they're not, literally they're not abundant because you can only find them in certain parts of a county. So, I mean, that's a whole other mixed bag we can get into what constitutes being an abundant species. The, the main thing is uh, you can find them in many states and in some places they're just crazy how abundant they are. So I think people are probably going during the breeding season and they're field collecting them because that's their only vulnerability. So it's, in, in a way it's kind of sad because, you know, you picture like a Disney type movie. I'm, I'm there with a bucket and I've got these like froglets. You could, we could say they're gray tree frogs for this instance, putting them in a little pond by a woods, you know, smiling and, and leaving and then another guy comes with a van with two five gallon buckets and he's scooping them up and they're snake food or you know they're going to be sold on ebay to some guy who just doesn't know how to take care of them so um and that's the reality both of those are the reality and and that's kind of a tough thing to to hear but um that's why there's a need for a nonprofit that's doing this work would you say that this specific population that you discovered is vulnerable oh yeah because they're only in places right now with deforestation uh, in both counties. It's kind of sad. Uh, there's You'll see in the Eastern Gray Tree Frog episode this year, it's literally a documentary. We, we uncovered them because the guy was doing deforestation down towards a creek or, uh, yeah, I think it's a creek or a river and, uh, or not a river, but like a small, like a larger stream type thing and uh he he'd wiped out all the trees except for around this pond so a lot of open field and then he had a hillside a very steep hillside and he's starting to deforest that this year so the reason why his name is esperanza is because that's the spanish word for hope and we're hoping that this frog 
can be the catalyst or he could be the ambassador or the mascot to get people to care about these animals in these counties because, you know, they were only found in places where they're at risk right now. And that's kind of a problem because if this guy were to wipe out all his trees, he could theoretically wipe them out of the county or a county. And, you know, that's not what anybody that has common sense wants. So, uh, I mean, we called him again, we called him Esperanza because of the word hope. But the other side of that is while he's deforesting the area where Esperanza is from, we found that there are more gray tree frogs right now than there had ever been in the last two or three years. So we're uncovering them sadly because of the deforestation. But um, yeah, they're, they're vulnerable. They're definitely vulnerable and trying to work with the neighbors on all sides in these different counties to create habitats or to just protect them to make sure that there's an opportunity for them to survive. Um, again, yeah, they're in other counties. They're very abundant, but to us where they exist in, in a couple of these counties, they're not common and they're worth saving. You know, they're, they're a special frog. You don't see them everywhere in the county. So to some of the neighbors that I've won over with that, you know, it, it means something they're, they're doing something good and they can teach their kids about that, or they can, you know, teach their family about that. And these are people that will never get into frog conservation or do science or get into herpetology, but, you know, they're going to teach their kids to love and respect these animals. And I don't think that there's anything greater that we could accomplish with what we're trying to do than also inspiring the next generation while we're saving the frogs. Yeah, that actually leads into my next question. You had done two recent, um, well, at least by, by this time, it wouldn't be I mean, we're, we're uh, airing this the week of August 4th. We recorded a couple of weeks prior, but you had done a appearance on, uh, I think it was Fox 8 News, and you had done a in-person presentation at, it looks like, Bedford Bible School. So adults generally watch the news. Kids generally go to school, all right? What was it like presenting your work on a news channel, which was, I'm going to assume, more geared towards adults versus being at a, uh, you know, a place where you were dealing with younger children. Like, what was what was your approach? Like, how did you approach the, you know, the, the news versus being, like, in person at the school? What were the differences between the two? Well, I'll start by saying that uh, not my inner circle of friends and, like, people that I'm networking with, but there are others, I would say, more peers in the science field, like school and stuff. Uh, it's, it's It tends to be more pessimistic, and so I kind of expect that before I go into anything. Like, you know, it might not work out, it might not go well just because of the field that I'm in. You know, it's more skeptic than it is taking things with face value. But what I can what I can actually say for both of those, the news show and for the the Bible school and the various critter talks I've done, is it's all been the same thing. It's very welcoming. So I actually thought after I watched it back that I could have done better on the news show, but I was very satisfied with the way it went, and um, I made an impact, and so did Esperanza with the people on there. The uh, I think the director and the host, they want us to come back. They want us to present. And now we've got a pipeline to encourage people about frogs and toads and, you know, tens of thousands of uh, watch viewers, you know, viewers that are going to watch that news show. And they're going to have the chance now every so often to hear about frogs and maybe somebody will reach out to me and, and have a new discovery. But 
the kids are super passionate and it's funny because I don't make YouTube videos for kids. I make them for older audiences, but it seems to be when I go out and do presentations, the younger kids are like so into it and I'm not changing the way I make my videos, but I can appreciate the community service and, you know, some of the things the nonprofits doing that I wouldn't necessarily do with my media brand. And so it's, it's kind of a, a different thing for me. You know, I'm, I'm dealing with people who are like ready to retire, people who are in their fifties, their forties, their thirties, their twenties, guys who are, you know, that have seen the world. And, um, you know, you see some really cruel things when you're out there doing road rescues and, and you're doing a lot of stuff. So to have the chance to bring an animal and, and kind of talk about it from an optimistic side of things, which is how I tend to look at life is it's a rewarding experience, but it's a, it's a welcoming experience. It's, it's, it's something that you look forward to. So it's been enjoyable and I was super excited to, to be at both. I'm thankful, you know, shout out to both of them for, having me and, and Esperanza and he's, he's the mascot this year just because he's the newest addition. Uh, I don't want people to think that I'm favoring him and he's the only frog I have. It's just, it so happens to be that he has gone on the most press conversations. Like he's done the news show, he's done critter talks and the other, some of the other animals haven't, they just maybe aren't the best uh, animals for educational purposes to take and put in a 10 gallon and teach kids about or whatever. Uh, you know, I would, I would still say Ace is like, is the one and Max is up there, my white's tree frog, but Esperanza, boy, has he made an impression on me and, and on everybody, I think in this community already. Another question, something that just kind of popped up into my head. I've, I want your opinion on this because this is something that you probably deal with fairly regularly. Every so often on social media or whatever, you know, whatever platform people use, Someone will post something, oh, I found an egg mass in my pool, or I found an egg mass in my pond, what should I do? And then people talk about leaving it there, people talk about moving it, a lot of people take them inside and raise them and then want to release them miles away. Like, What's your take on that? If, if someone finds an egg mass on their property or somewhere like what, what should they do? Should they just leave it or should they, should they somehow uh, involve themselves in it? Well, I think from a short answer first, uh, it's, it's completely up to the property owner. So, I mean, there's nothing that we can say that's going to change their mind or um, persuade them. Whatever they want to do at the end of the day is what they're going to do. And whether we like it or not, we have to respect that because they own the property. But what I would say is, depending on the situation, it's, it'd probably be best to put the egg clutch if it was in a, a swimming pool or a drying puddle or whatever. I mean, if it's legal to even touch the egg mass, unless you have to wait until they're tadpoles, um, to move it to a, a standing body of water within a mile is, is not really going to hurt anything. Usually frogs and toads in the wild can travel a mile, so it's nothing realistically. Unless, of course, you live in a very extreme environment, like close to a desert or something like a major highway. But if you're talking about head starting them, um, this has come up a few times actually this year and never before in the Frog and Toad Facebook group. And I don't, as long as it's legal, as long as they're following their state laws, it's not as big of a problem as people think because you're head starting animals that would be dying in puddles 
because most of the time it's wood frogs and American toads in the Northeast, or it could be great tree frogs or spring peepers. But usually people aren't catching bullfrog tadpoles because they're in deeper water. So if they want to go and they want to help these baby tadpoles, you know, these young tadpoles to develop, uh, and they're putting them back where they found them, or they're taking them generally in, in the same location, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And honestly, in some ways, it, it could turn out to be a good thing if they're doing it the right way, if they're doing it with like attention to detail, and they're not just trying to take them because they can. Um, to give you an example of this, I'm actually trying to work with the schools when I come back next year to do critter talks to potentially bring some tadpoles and allow the classrooms to grow them. And then I'm going to take them back to where they're from once they're baby frogs and release them. So in that example, I mean, you know, it, it could be, is that right? Because we're taking them out of the wild and if they do die or what, whatever, you know, we're taking food away from a water snake or taking food away from a bear, but, it, uh, you know, it, it just kind of, it really comes down at the end of the day to what are your values and what do you, what do you want to see happen? What do you want to get out of it? And what do you morally think is right? And that's a really hard question for anybody to answer. And, and I just look at it from, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish with breeding programs, head starting programs and stuff like that. So um, I guess that would be my, my two cents in the whole conversation. It's a good answer, and you're you're 100% correct. It really does depend on the the, the situation. I, I know some people have this completely hands-off approach to nature and wildlife, and, and obviously everything doesn't need to be a hands-on thing. It's, it's perfectly fine to observe wild animals and whatnot from a distance and not interfere. But at the same token, I don't see the harm in finding some tadpoles or a spawn in your backyard pool and raising them and then releasing them once they morph out. I don't see any harm in that. Yet some people, I mean, again, it's, there's so many different sides to that coin. Um, but I, again, I, I don't see, I kind of agree with you. I, I don't see it as necessarily being a negative thing by default, as long as you're doing the right thing and you're not actively pulling from where they came from to try and you know suit some other uh some other purpose uh, that might not necessarily yeah. be uh, in their best interest but yeah i mean look at the end of the day i think all of us here have caught tadpoles and, fr and froglets and whatnot when we were little that's how we got into it so um i can't imagine that that's 100 percent a bad thing every every time no, I don't think so. I, I also think helping, you know, the vernal pool breeders have it the worst, especially now with how things are getting super hot. You know, I feel bad for those early breeders like the wood frogs and even the first round of American toads because uh, they'll lay their eggs. You can end up having a 20-day dry season like it just, you know, it bakes the water, it's gone, and then those tadpoles are dead. And I've seen that the last couple of years more frequently for the wood frogs, sadly, where if they're not breeding in permanent bodies of water or they're not breeding in deep enough pools, then they're done. Like they're out of luck. So if somebody, you know, if a mom with three kids comes by and sees that the puddle is drying up and says, Oh, let's do something about it. Uh, you know, and then they want to bring them back 
and let's say there's a stream nearby or a wet area and they let them go. I mean, you only increase the opportunity that those baby frogs are going to survive by a significant number, probably tenfolded than what it would have if they were in the vernal pool. But, you know, somebody thought they were going to try to do something good for something that was, was struggling or could have died. So, you know, that, that's just, you know, one of the ways I look at it, but I understand everybody's different. So, I mean, there might be some that would completely disagree with that. Yeah. It, it runs the gambit and it, it's, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole other topic we could, we could spend hours and on, but, um, <laughs> I mean, another question I have for you is, and this is kind of a more, I, I realize that there's kind of like a little American toad and American tree frog uh, community out there as well. And obviously people are going to continue to keep animals in captivity that are native to the Eastern U S and, um, some people are going to do it well. Some people might not necessarily do it so well. You've obviously kept native species and faced some pretty significant challenges. What would you say to people who are keeping these species? I mean, it's not like you can necessarily just give out a basic care sheet, right? I mean, you'd have to be kind of aware of the greater picture in terms of what goes on to their care, right? Because it's not like... Um, you know, they're not going to have the same activity throughout the year and there's going to be differences in when they breed or whatnot. Like, I mean, dart frogs basically do the same thing all year round. They don't, they don't, they don't brumate, they don't estimate, they don't do any of that. But a lot of these species do. How do you give advice to someone who says, um, hey, Aaron, you know, I've got a hold of a couple of American toads. Um, I, I want to do the right thing. I want to provide them good care. I want to keep them in captivity what would you recommend? What, what would you say to a person in that situation? What advice would you give? I mean, the quick answer is I would, I've already done this. I'd try to talk them out of it because of how much money it costs. Um, you know, we just talked about some moral questions and, and I would try to find out like, why do they want to keep them or why, why are they keeping them? A lot of times, and it's funny cause I, you know, I'm, if you will, I guess I'm a part of this group, but there's a lot of arrogance and egos in the way with people that want to keep a lot of the native species that I've run into. And whether you're a student or you're a professor, or you're a veterinarian, um, no matter what you can present, no matter how much field experience you have, no matter how much, how long you've kept these animals, uh, there's so many people out there that think that they know what they're doing and, and they think that what they're doing is the right way. And they're the same people that in a year or two years or three years, their toad dies or their gray tree frog dies from the parasites or from lack of nutrition, or it's really stressed because it's in a five or 10 gallon tank. And, uh, you know, it, it's very hard to have these conversations because people don't want to listen. So, I mean, if I got to that point <laughs> with somebody online, I'd consider that a win because uh, there's just so many people that despise you and look look down at you if you try to offer some advice or some critiques so you know i have to kind of look at it as like i'm the bad guy or you know i'm gonna be very disliked because i have uh, i don't want to i don't ever want to say like i have the right answer but i'll just say i have a way of doing it that seems to be successful that's done me well and it's it's done my animals well and it's helped them to survive but uh you know i i the more i look into it the more I do feel bad for the, the wild ones because you think about tree frogs, they live in 70 foot trees. Well, we obviously can't provide that. And uh, somebody's five or 10 gallons, clearly not doing that. 
And, uh, you know, we think about wood frogs. They travel every night. They're moving around every night. They're nomadic, just like American toads. And somebody puts them in a five gallon, they start to deteriorate. Like their muscle, their muscles will actually start to wear away. And this actually happened. I, I rescued a toad from somewhere. And when the vet did a, an analysis on the animal, you know, a checkup, uh, she found that the toad's muscle mass was very, very weakened living in a 10 gallon for who knows how long I kind of estimate the, the toad to be around probably around 10 years old. So if the toad has lived in a 10 gallon tank for five, five, seven, maybe even eight or nine of the 10 years it's been alive and it's wearing away, wasting away. I mean, people don't like to hear that about their animals if they're in smaller tanks because they think that's the best they can do. Um, but you know, I, a lot of times I think that the, the wild animals get the short end of the stick because a lot of people, you know, they want to have collections. They want to have multiple frogs. Like it's kind of like their zoo. And I'm not, I'm not trying to disrespect people that do that because there's a lot of very ethical and responsible people. But a lot of times people that have those collections will take in wild animals like wild frogs and then they put them in shoe boxes and they give them the smallest tank and they do the least amount of work for them. And those are the animals that need the most because you've taken them out of an ideal situation and you put them in a very different environment that they've never experienced before. And they're relying completely on you now whenever it was all, you know, they had to do it or they would die. So a lot of people don't look at it from that perspective. They think, oh, it's a frog and I can do whatever I want and, and, you, and you can, but it's just not going to live that long. So I don't want to go on a rant with this, but. All I would say to end this is after I graduate, I'm going to try to create some care sheets about native species. And I hope people will take it seriously because I went to school and, you know, I'll have I'll have a, a master's degree in this. And I have so much field work and so much field experience with these animals. I keep them. I probably have some of the largest tanks that they've ever been in. It's comparable to the zoos, literally. Um like, I don't know many people that are keeping a toad or a wood frog in a 240-gallon or a gray tree frog in a 100-gallon terrarium. But I have a, what I'm saying is I have a lot of, of good advice and even bad advice, stuff that I've learned doing it wrong and what other people have done doing it wrong. But I just hope people will hear me out on that point that keep these animals. And, you know, maybe there will be some interest to read those care sheets when they come out. Yeah, I'd be interested to see them as well. I just, it's, it's just, it's so hard to condense everything down. Like people will ask me a question I mean, maybe it's just me. Cause I, I start talking and I don't shut up, but people will ask me questions about something. And then I start asking myself questions and I'm like, well, is this really the way it should be done? And then I, I, I then I, I just find myself kind of going in this big circle when someone asks me this very, very basic question, but I don't know. It's the, 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 the ethics. You're right. The ethics behind all this is um, it's it's rife with complexities you know, more than we could even begin to touch on. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the 240 gallon tank. Tell us about that, because I feel like that really sets a, um, a pretty high bar, you know, for um, for husbandry standards. What what gave you the inspiration to do that and how would you execute it? <laughs> well, we've gone full circle from the beginning question about why I got into it to this. So as I went to grad school and as I you know, planned to make this a big deal, 
you know, um, and I'll even back up a second and say the reason why I'm so passionate about this, whether it be the nonprofit and the field work with the wild frogs or YouTube and with my pets and my friends and the hiking stuff and podcasts and tanks is I, I live life, but like trying to work on both of these things, like they could potentially become my full-time job. Like I'm still looking for a career, but I mean, I approach these things very differently than a lot of other people probably because I'm going a thousand miles an hour as hard as I can, as much as I can, not even sleeping sometimes to try to make these things a reality uh, because I want to make the best life possible for myself, my pets, my, my friends. So if I can do all that with my YouTube channel or you know, if I can get employed by the nonprofit and can do some good for the wild frogs as well, um, that's kind of the goal at the end of the day, no matter what career I get, I'm always going to kind of be looking at one of those two or both of those two, uh, to fill that niche in my life. But, uh, the 240 gallon was my promise to ACE after I said, I'd never wanted her to experience what she had that, that time with the parasites and that time in her life, in my life. Um, and I was determined that I was going to spend as much time possible talking with herpetologists and zoos and everybody else to get a good feel for what's the square footage that animals could use in the, in the wild, but still interact. And, uh, you know, what, what could be the best setup that I could ever hope to create for an American toad and possibly ever that could have ever been created for an American toad. So I started looking at the environment where she's from and some of the cool things that I like to see out in the field where American toads are from. And I started looking into, you know, cause I have wood frogs and ACE and the wood frogs are in a climate controlled room. Everybody is kind of experiencing the same thing. So ACE is going to live in one of the nicest, if not the arguably the nicest American toad tank that's out there. And I, I believe that she is so interesting and so valuable that I could create a documentary series about her and about how I can incorporate even the wild animals into this story. So the goal is I want to focus on American toads, wood frogs, the purple pitcher plant, a carnivorous plant, and a few other creatures. And I want to show seasonality, like what we talked about in the beginning. How do these animals live throughout the year how can we follow a frog or a toad the different populations that we monitor you know can we follow them and see what they're doing in february and march in june and july and can we also replicate that in a tank for ace and esther the wood frog and other creatures as well that'll be in there so the inspiration came from the wild of, of doing all the field work and all the research and seeing this stuff happen on a nightly basis at the same places, you know, on a routine for the last five years, seeing this time and time again. So I want to teach people how these animals and educate people about how these animals are living in spite of pollution, in spite of, you know, changing climates, in spite of invasive species. And, and here's another one that I just thought of recently. Um, now, I'm always a strong believer in less animals, bigger tanks. Well, uh, I took in a rescued female American toad, so I'm trying to give her a nice home, and I think she's going to go in there. She can get along with Ace. So long story short, there's a couple more animals that are going to go into this than I would have liked. I would have liked to have just had four, two American toads, two wood frogs, and been done, but uh, 
as fate would have it, there's a couple more that'll be in there, uh, which I'm not necessarily the most thrilled about, but I, I can deal with it. I can get over that because uh, this is a big thing. So a lot of people will make the claim, and, th and they're right, American toads and wood frogs, and most frogs for that matter, are solitary. They don't hunt in packs. You know, They don't seek out social behavior from each other unless it's a male and a female and, and the male wants to you know go in amplexus <laughs> so most mostly the male is seeking out the interaction but anyway uh what we fail to understand in the wild is even though they have significant amounts of space there's still competition american toads in a forest are competing with each other to eat food and for resources like water and everything else uh not saying that we need to have 40 American toads and 15 wood frogs in the same tank. But with there being a couple more than I would have liked, we get a chance to show with that much space, how do the, how does ACE and how does Esther interact with, you know, more animals moving into their territory and competing for food. So now we start to get into even, even bigger questions, even more to talk about. Uh, this is going to be a tank that, um, I'm going to actually be able to try to replicate climate with like thunderstorms and foggy days and highs and lows, windy days, uh, flooding. I'll be able to showcase full moon, um, have multiple insects and try to have the seasonality when the insects come into the enclosure as a part of it. So there's just so much um, and it's all inspired by the wild. So, you know, there's there's just so many moving parts to this. It's really incredible. But that's the flagship project that I've been planning for the last five years that has yet to come out. So it's almost like the media brand, Woods and Forest Media, has been operating for the last five years without its main character. You know, you think of how many stories are in existence where the main character is gone. How, do, how many of those survive? How many of those succeed or, you know, continue to move on? And, and we have. We found a way. Um, so I really believe when this tank is... Uh, complete and we're starting to film the documentaries i really believe that this will be a major milestone and an accomplishment not just for me and for ace but you know for all wild frogs and toads because we're going to let people see them in a way that nobody's ever seen them before with cinema cameras and you know the works everything that you can think of is i've gone to zoos to ask questions um to see what I can do for this tank. So, I mean, literally I'm asking some of the leading experts to try and incorporate it into this tank. Yeah. I look forward to seeing it when it's finally done. It's gotta be really impressive. It was amazing trying to move it in to my room. We had to tear down a little bit of the ceiling and, uh, some walls had to kind of be sacrificed. And what are the dimensions on this thing? This has to be huge. <laughs> How does it like, I'm just picturing it now. Like I'm in my, closet and i'm like this has to be bigger than my closet how big is this thing well it's a good thing that i downscaled it because the original plan i wanted it to be an eight foot long tank and if i had my way if i had the big enough room i would have made it bigger than that if i could have but uh, because of the space it had to be i could make it a little bit over six feet i didn't want to i didn't want to give up i didn't want to do that but i kind of was forced to with the way the ceiling's height is so it's about um what is it 80 inches 80 and a half inches long so it's about six foot nine inches or so and 
it's 23 inches wide, so just below two feet, and it's 30 inches high. I wanted it to be higher so that way I could grow taller plants. Like I'm trying to propagate native plants like blueberries and goldenrod and ferns that you'd see out in the wild, and I'm getting all these from nurseries. So like I'm not even taking wild plants. That's how serious I'm trying to be about this and, and committed to keeping it as, as captive as possible or as clean as possible. Um, but let me share something even crazier with you. So maybe somebody will listen to this and have an answer. Uh, are you familiar with the oyster mushroom? Actually, yes, uh, I am. Uh, we have a, there's a, quite a few, um, Asian markets in my neighborhood and they sell them pretty regularly. I, I'm, if we're talking about the same thing, um, I have actually eaten them. So I'm hoping we're talking about the same thing. If not, I've just yeah. made a complete fool out of myself. No, 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 no. Yeah. You're talking about the same exact thing. So here's something very interesting that I just found out and I'm trying to do some research in myself and I talked to the vet about, and she's all for it. Um, and this could potentially be a side project that could actually be a breakthrough for zoos. So hopefully people that are in that space that are listening will also be curious about this. I found out that the oyster mushroom is able to feed on nematodes, microscopic worms, and the parasites that plague my animals the most are a parasitic nematode. So the theory is right now, because nobody's done this, if you would grow oyster mushrooms, let's say in, in a toad tank like this one, a 240 gallon, is it possible that those oyster mushrooms could wipe out or at least pre you know, predate on the nematodes? So have I just literally landed on a natural native remedy to potentially help frogs and toads in zoo in zoological settings and educational settings uh, to cope with having parasites in captivity, possibly without or with the minimal need for parasite like dewormer, like uh, ivermectin. So this could potentially be a big breakthrough depending on how this goes. And um, I have to set this up with the vet and, and try to figure this out. But uh, what I became aware of is it needs a very tempered climate and it needs to be able to move like blow through, right? Because it needs spores to get through and um, move through the tank. Well, I actually, without even knowing this, I have fans. I'll have a blower that's pushing air in and fans that are pulling air out in this tank. So I literally could spread the spores of that mushroom all through the tank. Uh, so I couldn't think of a more ideal situation for a more ideal enclosure at a more ideal time than you know what I could potentially accomplish. So it's just another, like the goal is potentially I could oyster mushroom farm in this tank, sell sell oyster mushrooms to people and eradicate parasites. And and the oyster mushroom, for those of you wondering, is native to where American toads and wood frogs are from. So this would actually be something that Ace might have seen in the wild whenever she was out hopping around. So just something neat, you know, an edible treat, but something that could potentially destroy her parasites. That'd be wild. Yeah. So I want to just end with what we can expect for this week. What are you going to be releasing to everybody for Frog Week? And what can everybody look forward to seeing in the, in the upcoming days? 
Well, everybody can check out all of the content. I mean, we're going to showcase native frogs and toads. If you're from the Northeast, like you've probably never seen before with the passion and the desire to want to care and help these animals, but you get a chance to see what we're all about with conservation, citizen science and outreach. I mean, I'm taking kids and parents out to see these animals in protected areas so people don't poach them. And I'm going, you know, either moments before that or even hours after those events to go out and do field work. Literally, like right after that, I'm going out and I'm filming this and, and showing you like these are American toads doing this or wood frogs doing that. You get a chance to see how we were engaging our community out here. And, you know, I would invite people, especially after you see episode eight on Sunday, to take me up on my invitation. I want people to go with me on this ride where you might not be interested in the hiking show, but you might see Dan on our podcast or somebody else who might interest you, or we might cover a topic on our podcast that might interest you. I'd like to invite people to see the pet care show. You might not keep American toads or great tree frogs, but maybe you're fascinated in how somebody who is a graduate student in herpetology takes care of them. You know, you might be interested in seeing how I create like uh, videos that just literally focus on those animals and not reviews or not other things, but I do reviews as well. But I want people to take the journey with me for the first time. I'm, I'm actually inviting anybody who will listen to come and check out and, and see the quality projects that we're doing at Woods and Forests Media. And I'd encourage them to reach out and, and take a look at the nonprofit and see if there's a way they can help or if they want to donate uh, to PA Woods and Forests because we could use any help that we could get. So, I mean, that's, that's really what I leave everybody with is give us a chance, give us an opportunity and, you know, come in with an open mind because this is the beginning point. This is the bottom floor of what we're trying to accomplish moving forward. This is not the end. This is not like, you know, a one-off thing. So that's all I would say is, you know, I really hope people will, will take me up on my invitation to check this stuff out. And I really hope that I can impact whoever is listening to this to, you know, maybe even inspire them to want to pursue their dreams or want to make a difference in their area and the native frogs around them. Yeah, it's very inspiring. You know, a, a lot of us start out with frogs and toads and salamanders that we find in our own backyard, and we kind of forget about them in the long term. And then they get pushed under the rug. We become more interested in other species, especially exotic. Everyone always loves exotic stuff. Although I'm sure outside of the U.S., there's probably a, a great interest in our species. Like I know our salamander species are like hugely popular in other parts of the world, but we kind of just take them for granted. But you're right. There really does need to be a more concerted effort made to have an interest in a lot of these species that are native. I mean, yeah, they're not bright red, blue, and yellow frogs, but they still have a tremendous amount of value. And they still have this this intrinsic beauty to them that... I think anyone can appreciate if you really just take the time to look hard enough. 100%. I, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, American toads are known to trip motion sensor lights and great tree frogs will come and eat insects off of your windows. You know, wood frogs can freeze solid and you can learn a lot about these animals if you see them up close and personal or, you know, if you get the chance to interact with them in your own backyard. And I want to encourage people to potentially see all of that with what we're doing 
but you know encourage them maybe to start their own thing or you know to to take a look at what inspires them too absolutely well, Aaron, I, I want to thank you so much. I know, I know we could, we could probably go on and on and on for hours. We'll have to do uh, we'll have to do a follow up because I'm really I really I'm dying to see how that 240 gallon tank uh, pans out, and um, I'm I'm curious to hear about some of the other projects you're working on, especially with the nematodes and the uh, mushrooms. But um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. If you want to just share real quick um, any links or I mean I'm going to include links in the in the show description, but any links or any of the Facebook groups or anything like that, if people want to find out more. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'll share with you the frog and toad Facebook group. You guys can catch up with us there. If you want to, like I said, check out woods and forest media, the YouTube channel, the Instagram, we're on both. And then the nonprofits website and Facebook. Yeah. I would be more than happy to provide all that. Sure. All right. So everybody listen and take a look in the, in the, uh, show description and, uh, there should be plenty of links in there. So, all right, everyone, again, I want to thank Aaron so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to him. And uh, like I said, if you guys are interested in this content, you know, let me know. You know, I, I like hearing input from you guys. Always feel free to reach out on Instagram. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up. So make sure you check out all of Aaron's work for Fraud Week 2023. And uh, moving ahead, of course, there's a lot of, lot of fun stuff coming up. I've got some pretty great people lined up for the near future. So make sure you keep on listening, stay tuned, and I will catch up with you guys again next time.